Good morning, family. Good morning. No, I think at times that as part of our church and being amidst Christian circles, we can start throwing around Christianese terms like regeneration and sanctification and redemption. And if we toss them around so frequently, it seems as though we can get lost in what it actually means for our lives. Speaking for myself, um, especially in preparing for sermons, I can forget to remember how those truths apply in my life, not just to grasp the conceptual aspect of it. And it was neat because in preparing for this sermon, it's caused me to actually have to meditate and to chew on the redemption and how that applies to our life, not only in the abstract, not only in the way that we can explain it to others, but how it applies to our lives. And I hope that through this sermon and the passage that we're going through today that it touches your heart as it did mine. So uh, we'll get right into it. And if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, we'll start. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in the spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address the Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. This is the very word of God. Thanks, Chad. Let's bow. Father, we come to you as one family, as one body. And I ask for our protection in that we don't leave here after this message from your word with only being filled with head knowledge and becoming prideful and puffed up, but rather, Father, that we understand through your spirits leading in our hearts and our minds, but that we also have an understanding of how it applies to our lives and what our response in our life is to be from our redemption in your Son. 
I thank you for this opportunity to share your word before brothers and sisters, and I thank you for this church, and I uh, pray that you protect me from thoughts of myself, and that this is all about you, this is for your glory. These things we praise you for, in your name, amen. Once there was a briar growing in a ditch, and there came along a gardener with his spade. As he dug around it and lifted the briar, he said to itself, what is he doing? Doesn't he know that I'm a worthless briar? But the gardener took it into his garden and planted it amid his flowers. And while the briar said, what a mistake he has made planting me amongst these beautiful roses. And the gardener came once again and made a slit in the briar with his sharp knife. He grafted it with a rose, and when summer came, lovely roses were blooming on that old briar. Then the gardener said, Your beauty is not due to what came out of you, but what I put in. Now at times we can forget who God made us to be. And like the gardener taking the briar and transplanting into the rose garden, our Father has grafted us into his family. We are now children of God. Not because of what we had to offer, but because God himself took our heart of stone out that was against him and put in a heart of flesh that had a desire to serve and love him. However, when we forget that we are redeemed children of God, we have a tendency to begin to live in our former manner of life. We neglect time spent in prayer before decisions are made, and consequently we become compulsive and impatient. Our phones and our TVs become our escapes after we had an argument with our spouse. We can convince ourselves things like alcohol is our escape for our loneliness. Sometimes we can even get to the point on the job that we get so gung-ho that we run over our fellow employees. We can even begin to convince ourselves that a Christian lifestyle really isn't that much different from the world's. When we forget that we are redeemed children of God, we begin to live by our former ways of life. Now, I'm sure many of us have struggled with these thoughts. Our text today reminds us that no matter what we face, we shouldn't lose heart. We need not be driven down by despair as if our hope is vaporized. And we can, come, we can be completely hopeful because our sin has lost its grip on our souls and we are redeemed. And we are promised that one day Jesus will return and we will be free from suffering and pain and temptation of any kind. But until that day, God has a plan for you and I here now. And because we are redeemed children of God, we are to live now a lifestyle that reflects the character of our Father. Because we are redeemed children, we are to live a lifestyle now that reflects the character of our Father. You see, because we're God's children, God calls his children to live like their father. Let's go to the text. Verses 13 through 16 says, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the one... But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And like a loving father calls his children to uphold certain standards for their own good, 
and for his family's reputation, our Heavenly Father likewise calls his children to live by a standard of holiness. But first, we need to get the right perspective on what holiness means and what holiness looks like. In verses 15 through 16, Peter writes that we are to be holy like the one who calls us is holy. He can quotes from Leviticus reminding the audience that he's talking to then, this isn't new information. This is written to God's people even at the beginning, and it still applies to us today. But first, what is holiness? Holiness means to be pure. It means to be blameless. It means to be set apart. It means to be sacred. Now, our Father is completely blameless. He's completely pure. He's without sin. In him, there is no evil. There is no injustice. He's not biased. He does not play favorites with his people. However, there is a problem. The problem is not with God. The problem is with us. Now, in the text, it seems like we're being asked to do something that's impossible. How can a sin, a people that are without sin live like their father who is sinless? How can we love unconditionally like our father loves us? How can we refrain from falling back into the old desires and the old habits of our former previous day's life? How can we forgive without attaching strings? The answer is we can't. Being called to do the impossible is not our forte. However, Peter seems like he wants us to understand how the impossible becomes possible. Number one, God himself, it says in verse 15, is the one who calls us. God calls us. He summons us. He bids us to be holy. It is a work of God that produces his holiness in us. And because nothing is impossible with God, any manifestations of his holiness in and through us aren't either. It is through his grace that we can actively live in obedience to what he commands us to. Number two, our Father projects his holiness that he calls us to live by onto us through his Son, Jesus Christ. In verses 13 through 16, it sounds like Peter's just giving us a list of things to do and what not to do, but those things are in response to our redemption. As a result of our redemption, we are to prepare our minds for action, to be sober in our thinking and not be conformed or fashioned by our former pre-Jesus desires and ways of life. Now, we can't miss this point. God provided a way through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to accredit his holiness to us by dying on behalf of our lack of holiness. So Peter informs us that our response to this redemption is that we are to prepare for action. We are to gird up our loins, so to speak, to roll up our shirt sleeves and live in a manner that's in line with the character of our Father. Though it's not an easy task, by remembering that we have a promise to be with our Savior when he returns, we shouldn't lose heart in light of that. It's because of that promise that makes living in holiness not lived in vain. And as obedient children, we are no longer to practice the ways that we used to live prior to our redemption. So what does this mean for us? Now, in light of being redeemed, we are to daily guard our hearts and minds from any intoxications that would inhibit us or keep us from following the Lord's commands. And this could look like cutting out time on our social media. This could look like cutting out the time that we would spend otherwise keeping up on the latest gossip. 
This could even be controlling outbursts of anger with our spouse, even when no one is looking. You know, we aren't to seek escapes from reality anymore, such as the drugs, such as binge-watching TV, keeping jam-packed schedules, etc. We used to do those things without the understanding that they were wrong, that they were unholy by God's standard, and we used to be molded and shaped by our sinful desires. However, now, current tense, today, as redeemed children, we don't have the option of flipping off Christian switches whenever it's a convenience for us. Under all circumstances, we are to live like our Father. That means that we are to love unconditionally, not only if we think it'll be reciprocated. We aren't to skip corners on the jobs just to make an extra buck. We aren't to ramrod our way through life by mowing other people over for the sake of progress. I've struggled with that. We need to remember that even in the times when life gets tough, that we've been wronged, that gives us no excuse to quit living like our Father. We need to remember that we have nothing to lose because no one thing or person will take away the hope that we have in Christ. But frankly, I understand that sometimes life can just downright stink. Some of us have experienced times when we want to throw our hands up in the air and just quit. How do we respond in these moments? Why? It seems like our hope is pivoted off of Christ and becomes fixed on things like money or acceptance, relationships, a career, things that we can see, things that we can touch. Sometimes we lose our footing by desiring convenience over holiness, but we need to keep persevering. None of those things outside of Jesus are worth pursuing. They all have an end. They don't last. But because what our Father gives us in Christ does last, because it endures forever, living like our Father is worth the cost. Verse 17 says, If you address his Father, the one who impartially judges, according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Now in some countries today, and I'm sure even back in Peter's time when he was writing this, people have been and will continue to lose their lives out of obedience to their salvation. Yet they feel like their salvation is worth dying for. Why is that? I think part of it is found in verse 17 with the fact that our Father is the one who judges all men's works. Now Peter isn't saying that we are saved by our works, but what he is saying is that the deeds of a person is reflective of who they believe and why they and who they choose to serve. If those who call God his Father, the one who judges all men, then their lifestyles will reflect the holy character of God as their Father. And as redeemed exiles, we don't live by the standard of the world any longer. We live by the standard of the Holy One who is the standard in himself. The truly redeemed life we have from Christ is living, it's genuine, it's active, We will all be judged by God, believers and non-believers alike. But because of Christ's redemption, and because it produces in us a hatred of sin and a love for God, we ought to live like the Holy One who calls us to live. Commentator Karen Jobs writes, As often has been said, the indicative of God's grace precedes the imperatives of God's commands. The intimate relationship between the believer and Christ and God as Father does not give license to the Christian to live as he or she wishes. For God does not judge impartially. 
The pagan life will be no less abhorred if it is lived by the one who professes to be a Christian. The Christian who has been born again of the Father must live, in fact, as a child of God. You might be saying, well, gee, Scott, I thought you said that living like the Father was worth it. Sounds kind of scary to me. And I think it's supposed to produce that to a degree in us, out of, out of who God is. We should fear God in a healthy dose, out of reverence for who, his, who he is. But let's read on. There's part two to this. Verses 18 through 21 says, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him up from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. And this is it, brothers and sisters. This is why, even if we're faced with death itself, to live like our Father is worth it. Now you can take any, any religion, even atheism. Now what do all other religions outside of biblical Christianity have in common? Uncertainty. Every other religion outside of biblical Christianity is based on man's own efforts, man's own abilities to follow the law or the mandated beliefs as best they can. But get this, it, it gets crazy because in some religions, even if you follow that standard down to the T, you can still be rejected for whatever reason. Now, atheism would say that we as men autonomously pick our beliefs. We follow our own set of standards of morality. But even atheism has to answer the unanswerable dilemma of, is my good works good enough for whatever they hope to achieve after death? It's uncertainty. Now, what makes Christianity so unique is that God flat out tells us that no matter how hard we try, we cannot live up to his standard of holiness for our salvation. But Christ can, and he did. Now, our redemption has been accomplished, and the word redeemed in verse 18 carries out this idea that we have been bought back. He has paid our ransom from the person who is holding us captive. Our sin is our sin nature. But God sent a redeemer to buy us back from that, and he's paid it in full. Now, God will judge all men. As humans, we all fall short of the standard of holiness. But Christ gave us his holiness, and we are now made right before God. Now, this redemption isn't futile, and it's not temporary, and it doesn't come with a 30-year money-back warranty as if it's going to collapse. Because it is from God, our hope cannot and will not perish. Now, God isn't at odds because the world's morality is in decline. He isn't back to the drawing board drafting up a plan to redeem humanity as it once was. He didn't miscalculate. Mankind ignored his standards in the beginning that he gave to them, and he even knew before he started creating the universe that this was going to happen. And yet, despite our screw-up, brothers and sisters, don't get this, he already chose a redeemer who would irreversibly buy us back from our sin. 
And because our Redeemer has defeated sin and is alive and well today, our hope remains never to perish. That's why living like our Father is worth it. But in the times when it feels like we're being drugged through the mud, when it feels like we're being running through the gauntlet, why does that make it worth it? The assurance of our hope now and hope to comes and hope to come keeps our entire being, our heart and soul and mind and strength fixed on the grace that we have in Christ. It cannot be lost no matter what we face, no matter who we wrong, no matter who wrongs us. We are to go back and seek forgiveness even when we have wronged them because we admit our failures, because we have faults. That's not the end. We are redeemed. We are to live like redeemed people, even seeking forgiveness of those who we've wronged. It changes the way we think. It changes the way we perceive temporary struggles and pain we face on earth. We become steadfast in times of peril. We become equipped to love our fellow employees who are antagonistic. We become humbled by Christ, and we are able to relate to one another by admitting our faults, admitting our weaknesses, even when our pride says not to. Because of our redemption, we don't have to be driven by anger. We don't have to be driven by depression. We don't have to be driven by lust. We don't have to be driven by addiction any longer. We are promised that one day we will be spending eternity with our Heavenly Father, where we will not face ridicule, where we will not face suffering, trials, sickness, conflict with others, arguments with our spouses, wayward children, feelings of inadequacy, shame, guilt, exhaustion, pride, and on and on. But while we're still here, brothers and sisters, let's keep pressing forward. Don't quit the fight. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you as promised. Live in holiness as your Father is holy. Now let's bring this close to home. We've discussed why we should keep persevering and living in holiness, but how does living in holiness affect our relationships with other believers? What really makes our community as redeemed exiles different from the world? Living like our Father produces a sincere love for one another. Verse 22 says, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart. Peter reminds his audience then and us today that because we are faithfully living in obedience to God's word, we no longer love one another the way that we used to. Because our nature has changed as a result of our redemption, we have learned genuine love for one another, but particularly other believers. This love is not meant to be fake or superficial. We don't do the whole compliment to someone's face and then gossip about them behind their back. That's not Christ-like love. That's worldly love. We don't quit helping and serving one another because they haven't reciprocated the act. That's worldly, conditional love. Theologian Jay Wilson writes, Love is a terribly debased term today, almost beyond rescue as a description of the good news of the kingdom come in Jesus Christ. We must work to recover an understanding and practice of love. Salvation is living in the way of love. Now there are two different uses for the words love in 22. The first reference is talking about a brotherly love. It's a noun. It's a part of our new identity of who we are in Christ. It's an affection naturally befitting 
the relationship between siblings, but especially of those who are now siblings in God's family. Because our souls have been and continue to be purified by the word of God, we learn to genuinely love one another in the manner that Christ loves us. Now, the second use of the word love is a command to actively love because our redemption is not just for our own benefit, it's for the benefit of one another. It's a verb. This is an ongoing act. We don't just stop loving one another year after our conversion. We don't stop loving brothers and sisters, get this, even when we had a disagreement about theology last week. Because Christ gave us his love by giving up his rights for our good, we are commanded as God's children to exhibit the same love to one another, you and I, as he loves us. Jesus even says in John thirteen thirty five, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Now I'm using Pastor Chad's phrasing from a series in the book of Philippians, but as God's obedient children, we love not for our salvation, but from our salvation. And the world loves those who agree with their worldview, but ostracizes those who don't. The world says, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. Jesus, our Savior, the one who redeemed us, tells us to love your enemy, to even pray for those who persecute you. And get this, so that they too may become sons of your Father who is in heaven. How radical is that? That's some radical love. We are to be patient in our dealings with one another. We are to no longer hang accusations over one another's heads, always reminding them of where they went wrong and how they, as a result, owe us. That's worldly, conditional love. Paul tells us that even if we, do all, if we don't do all things and say all things from the basis of true, genuine, biblical love is defined by and embodied by the person of Christ, everything that we do is for nothing. It's in vain. Peter says it's futile. Now, Peter further explains in verses 23 through 25, we love because the living and enduring word of God has and is purifying our souls to love. We persevere in that love knowing that God's promise to love us and his command for us to love one another does not change. It does not become altered. God's word remains forever. And unlike material possessions, our wealth, our religious traditions, or our own futile efforts, God's word doesn't change. We love under all circumstances. Now look at verse 24, but just follow along with the first half. It says, All flesh is like grass, and all of its glory like the flower of grass. Now stop there. Now, while I was reading this, at first glance, that doesn't seem all that bad. Because in your mind, like mine, I was thinking, well, I've seen some pretty flowers. I've seen some prairies, especially meadows at the base of mountains in Montana, and even here, that especially in spring when it's green and flowers in full bloom, it looks pretty. Shannon and I were down in Hawaii last February, and we visited some botanical gardens. And I'm not a botanist, but even I can appreciate this. But we visited botanical gardens, and just seeing the difference of varieties of flowers and the shapes and the colors and the sizes, the intricacies within the different species, it was absolutely incredible. I mean, it was pretty. But what Peter's doing here is saying that, like those flowers, they have beauty, they are gorgeous, 
but they are temporary. Likewise, the glories of man, the accomplishments of man, the good efforts of man, likewise, will perish. It will fade. Let's keep reading. Look at the next half of verse 24, going into 25. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of God endures forever. Man's efforts, like the grass, no matter how deep its roots, withers. Our accomplishments, our own good deeds, like the flower, eventually falls off its stem. And while these abilities that we have been given by God are not bad in and of themselves, they are of absolutely no value to earn us any brownie points with God toward our salvation. Our own efforts, as Peter, Peter puts, are futile. We don't earn points. We've been fully accredited with the holiness of Christ. Peter uses precise languages in his writings. We have not been born again by a method or means that wears out or perishes. Man created the Titanic, a ship that God couldn't even sink. And we know the rest of that story. It now lies over 12,000 feet at the bottom of the Atlantic. And where is that glory now from 1912? Research suggests that by the year 2030 that the structure of the Titanic will completely collapse because of the rusting in bacteria that's causing it to weaken. It's perishing. I've talked to people, friends, on their last days here on earth that say they fear death. And they say that they fear death because they look back on their life and they feel as though their own efforts is what's going to gain them anything after they die. And they have put their hope on their own human efforts to do good, yet while knowing it may not be good enough. We may find hope in what we have, who we surround ourselves with, our GPA, our 401k, our jobs, whatever. All these things have one thing in common. They all perish. But God's word and his promises do not. Now I understand that we can become discouraged when we feel like we've been making spiritual progress, we've been doing the things that God has asked us to do only to fail once again. I get that. But it's in those times of failure that remind us of our need for Christ that we can't do what God asks us to do on our own. But I want to encourage you to press on in your obedience, family. Philippians 1.6 says that we can be confident, we can be confident that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Martin Luther, I love this quote, Martin Luther says, for the more aware they, Christians, for the more aware they are of their weaknesses and sin, the more they take refuge in Christ, the mercy seat. They plead for his assistance that he may adorn them with his righteousness and make their faith increase by providing the spirit by whose guidance they will overcome the desires of the flesh and make them servants rather than masters. And don't, get, don't miss this last part. Thus a Christian struggles with sin continually and yet in his struggle he does not surrender but obtains what? Victory. Obtains victory. Now, family, we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but by the blood of a spotless lamb. Even when you feel guilt and shame from your sin, even when you have doubts that you will ever be able to love and live in holiness like God requires, know this, 
God's word purifies and will continue to purify my and your souls. He has changed you and I, and our response to that as redeemed exiles is to live lives reflective of the character of our Heavenly Father. It's worth the temporary cost, and we are to fervently, in everything that we say and everything that we do, we are to fervently and intentionally, genuinely, purely love one another. And this is what makes us as a family distinct from the rest of the world. world. Let's pray. God, we, we like the briar, can at times feel so unworthy of what we have in you. Father, we wonder at times, how can we even do? We know what you want from us. We know what you require of us, but we wonder how can we do that as men, as women? but we know that it's because of your son who gives us the strength. It is your spirit who lives in us from the blood of Christ. It's because you have secured our hope that we can and we can continue persevering in our obedience as your children. And Father, I pray that each and every day you remind us of the hope to, to, hope to come through Christ and that we don't become so overwhelmed with our circumstances here and now, but knowing that this is only temporary you do have us here for a reason. You do have us here for a purpose to live distinct among the world, to love one another like you love us. But I pray that in our weaknesses, you make us strong and you give us the ability, the desire, the want to serve you and to love one another because we are so overwhelmed with the love and the grace that you have shown and continue to show us each and every day. I thank you for each one here. God, it is not by any mistake that you have brought them here today to hear this. It's not by mistake that you had me preparing this, and this is just as much for my own life as it is anyone else's. Father, I pray that you change us from your word. I thank you that you purify our souls. And I thank you for your son, that because of him we are redeemed. We are no longer slaves to our sin. We love you and we praise you. Amen.